Morning, gentlemen. So uh, five years ago, I was in South Sudan for the summer. I was going to be there. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I was going to spend the summer there working with alcoholics following the Civil War to tell them about Jesus. And prior to doing that, you can't fly directly into South Sudan because the country's been decimated um, from the Muslims in the north and that invasion. And so what you do is you fly into northern Uganda, and then you catch a little prop plane from northern Uganda into South Sudan. But I have a three-day layover uh, not layover, before I caught my prop plane. And so someone had told me, hey, before you get there, before you go into South Sudan, while you're there just killing time in Uganda, you should float the Nile. And in my mind, I, I, I was like, float the Nile? I, I'm thinking back to every Sunday school class I've ever had, like just wide swath of like a lazy river, palm trees, and maybe some cows among the reeds or something. Like I, I did, that's what was in my mind. And he's like, no, it's like a river rafting deal. And uh, uh, I was like, all right, cool. So I just took his word for it. I'm staying at a youth hostel to save money. So me and all the like random international misfits from all over the world get into this bus and we go to the river rafting place and we arrive there and it becomes a very interesting experience. You get there and the very first thing they do, I mean, before you even like could possibly slip and fall, they're like, here's your release, sign it. And it's life and limb. Like they've got everything dotted and crossed to make sure that there is no lawsuit, uh, whether you die or not. And uh, that, that starts to tell me this is not the Nile that I've envisioned. I'm, I'm thinking like Africa's in general pretty flat, like it can't be that dangerous. And then you go to the next station and they say, here's your life vest. I expected that. Here's your helmet. I was like, what's the helmet for? For the rocks when you fall out of the, well, if you fall out of the boat. And I'm like, you said when? And uh, so I've got my helmet, my life jacket, I've signed my release. I go to the next station. And uh, I thought it was just going to be me and my buddy that I was traveling with, that I was going into Sudan with. And instead, there's, you know, the, the random dude for Sweden, the girl from Israel, and all these, like, high school and college-age kids that are, uh, may or may not have been stoned at the time. And I'm like, man, what if these guys are in my crew? Like, this is bad. I'm, I'm entrusting my life to Sven from Sweden. Like, this is, this is not a hopeful situation. And... Uh, I'm already a little concerned, and then we proceed further, and um, they've got this kind of FAQ section and detail, and, you know, one of the questions is, uh, are there any crocodiles? Because a Nile crocodile, it's not an American alligator. We're talking like 20 feet long, 2,000 pound, eat zebra type of animal, prehistoric. And they say this, well, we haven't seen any. I'm like, you dodged the question. We ask if there are any, and you said you haven't seen. That's because they're underwater and they attack their prey. Like that, great. Thank you that you haven't seen them yet. And then they tell us the description of what we're going to do. They say, you know, on this tour, uh, there's going to be incredible amount of uh, strength and endurance required, and you know, there's, there's times that you're going to just have to paddle for um, close to an hour. And it, it, it's going to be exhausting. And so if you have questions about physical strength or heart conditions, now is probably the time to stop. There's also going to be 10 to 15 foot drops into swells and eddies and pools. Um, when the boat capsizes, there will be rescue kayakers there. Just stick up your paddle. They will find you. Look for the sunlight if you're underwater and you're swirling. And I'm like, I, this is I've got to be in Sudan in three days for the summer, like to tell people about Jesus. I don't think this is where I should be. And then here's the kicker. They say, and your guide, Sarah, will help you if you have any questions. And I was like, all right, 
look, I'm not a chauvinist, but my Sarah, like that's a weird name for a river raft, dude. And it's this like 100 pound something little girl, woman. And, and uh, again, not a chauvinist, but I'm like, if I get clocked onto a rock and I'm unconscious in the water floating downstream with the croc waiting for me, I don't want Sarah to be the one trying to like drag me back to safety. I need, uh, is there a, a strong man that could take me down this river? And um, it was Sarah. And at that point, I'm like, Tell my buddy, you know what, you go on ahead. I, I just, I can't, I can't take this risk. There's, there's too much uh, at, at stake for what I have committed to do. And so go on ahead. I'll be there at the end. I'll hold the passports and whatever and um, enjoy it. It's a wise decision, right? I think that was a, the right thing. No, it was a terrible decision and I didn't make it. I told Sarah, I'm like, I want the front seat. Put me in the front of the boat. I don't want to look at the back of the helmet. I want to see that wave when we go down into it, 15 feet. I want to hit it. I want to be the guy on the front. I want to see everything. I wanted to experience it all. I didn't care, you know, sign the release, the waves, all of it. It was like, it's thrilling to me. And to you, I'm sure as a guy, we've got some pictures of it. I mean, you can see like what we're talking about. They were class five. It's class five rapids. There's only six classifications. This was five. Like it's, it's what they can allow people to do uh, with truly not actually dying. And so that's not actually my picture. I'm clearly, I'm not able to take pictures as you're doing this, but that's from their website. But we flipped like that. I actually don't recall what happened. I just remember going over the falls and all of a sudden I'm like, looking for light, as they told me, underwater and just kind of swirling. And uh, y'all, it was the most exhilarating, adrenaline-filled, crazy thing I've ever done. Uh, And and it's also one of the most difficult things I've ever done. When they said you're going to paddle for an hour, literally the only thing keeping me going was knowing that 100-pound Sarah was behind me. And I'm just like, I can't quit. I can't quit. I mean, she's done this so many times. I can't quit. And so I'm just pat. I mean, I was exhausted. There are times when she was like, hey, you can get out and swim. But other times when she's like, hey, if, if you don't listen to me when I'm telling you which way to pull us and steer us, we could die. So I need you to listen to every word I say. There will be times when you do not play. And uh, it was incredible. And yet it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, if you're ever in northern Uganda, look it up. But I would imagine when I told you guys that I uh, sat on the side, let my buddy go ahead, and I could tell by the response, a lot of you were like, who let this joker teach the men's Bible study? That he didn't get on that boat. Are you kidding me? Don't they screen these people? But here's the thing. That's how we live our lives. With our contingency plans and backups and backups for our backups and playing it safe. And well, there's a lot of risks involved and I'm not sure that that would be wise. And, you know, that's kind of a dangerous part of the world or town. We just play it safe, man. I, I, I don't want to get on that boat. Even though God has said in this passage, hey, it's going to be difficult. You are going to face trials, he promises and everything in us screams, I want comfort, I want pleasure. I'll take the good, but don't give me the bad. And I will fight against you when the bad comes. And so it's imperative 
that we grasp hold of what's here in Ecclesiastes 3 in this passage so that not if, but when those trials and afflictions and hardships come, we're prepared and that we don't mock or revile or undermine or question God, but that we fear him and that we rejoice and that we enjoy this ride as God intends for our good and for his glory. So what we're going to talk about today is the process of life, God's promise to us, and therefore the prescription, what we are to do. The process, God's promise, and then the prescription for us. If you've done your reading for the week, Tommy Nelson says this. He says, God is wise and mysterious. We are to enjoy life and rest in his sovereignty. Those are kind of the four platforms that he lays out in Ecclesiastes 3. Unfortunately, Tommy is not here. You're stuck with me. And so we're going to go a different route. The birds also, this is the first time you're ever going to hear this passage. And I'm not going to subject you to that terrible song from the 60s. You're welcome. So the first point, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 10. I call this the perplexing process. Perplexing process because what we're about to read is filled with both good and bad. I mean, if God loves us, he would just give us good, right? Why would he give us bad? Why would he give us difficulties? It's a perplexing process. I'm going to read this passage. And guys, as I do, when I read something good, I want you to say good out loud. And when there's something bad in this list that we're going to read, I want you to say bad. So as we go through this, we're going to be popcorning back and forth. Good, bad, good, bad. Got it? For everything, there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, time to laugh, time to mourn, time to dance, time to cast away stones, time to gather stones together. Yeah, some of them you don't know if they're good or bad. A time to embrace. (laughs) Time to embrace. You're like, you don't know my wife. A time to refrain from embracing a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow. Who said good? You guys don't sow. Like I sewed my arm with dental floss and a toothpick. That's how I sew. A time to keep silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. You hear throughout that list, there are many good things, many bad things or hard things. And here's the deal. Every single one of them is is an appointment from God. They are all sovereignly appointed from God. And he has either made them to be or allowed them to be. And so prior to this passage in Ecclesiastes, you see this repeated again and again. Under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, meaningless, the toil, a chasing after the wind, but it's all under the sun. Here in this passage, he switches and he says it's under heaven, meaning this is sovereignly appointed under God's control. Sovereign, meaning he is over all. He has all authority and all power and nothing happens apart from his sovereign will. This is all under heaven. And guys, you have got to get sovereignty 
into your personal theology. You have to, and you've got to get it now before the day of affliction and trial and hardship hits, because when it does, you will question and undermine or even forsake the Lord your God. And so you've got to know that no matter what befalls you, he is sovereign. He is in control. It says in 2 Timothy 3.12, anyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer. There will be good and there will be bad. Verses two through eight, there's one life, but there are many seasons. We read 28 of those seasons just then, as you guys said, good and bad, easy and hard, 28 seasons. You know, when I think about uh, Laura and I on a road trip, it's like this. We, we start off packing and packing the car and she's getting our little boy and it's stressful. But then we're in the car and we start our journey and we're excited. You know, we pray before the trip, we're happy, all is well. Our little boy's still entertained by the toys in the back. And then we get on 75 and it's like standstill traffic. He's screaming in the back and we're trying to figure out what to do. And so then we get into it and we start fighting a little bit. Then we get into Oklahoma and it's smooth sailing because there's nothing there. And so all of a sudden we're able to drive and things are better again. You know, we aren't fighting anymore aside from the Oklahoma police. And so she's like, slow down, speed trap, slow down. It's Stringtown, don't go fast. And then we hit Dairy Queen and we're happy again. And then she falls asleep. And there's a four hour stretch where it's boring and quiet. And the beauty of the trip is gone because it's nighttime as we head to Missouri. And then we cross the Missouri border and I'm excited because I'm crossing back where I, where I grew up and came from. And then we get home to my parents and there's excitement and joy. But it's not all good and it's not all bad. And so I put for this point, there's smiles and there's trials and they are only for miles. It will not be all bad, the road trip, this journey of life, and it will not be all good. And that should be our expectation. But here in America, we're like, no, it should always be good. I'm going to get more and more money. We're going to be healthy. I'm going to retire early. We're going to get those things. And so we're offended or shocked when God would sovereignly allow one of these hardships into our lives, though he has promised it. Thankful and praise when it's good, perseverance and prayer when it's hard. Verses nine through 10. So after, after Solomon walks us through this list, he says then the question that's on everyone's mind what gain has the worker from his toil? He says, what's the point? If that's the case, if I'm going to build up all my life only for it to be torn down, if I'm going to gain and gain and gain only for it to be lost, if I'm going to love only to hate and be hated, if I'm going to have a period of peace only to have war, like what's the point? Why go through all that? It's futility, right? Which is what the world screams. The world would scream that it is futile. Eat, drink, and tomorrow you die. This is it. So get what you can, why you can, because it's futile. This is existentialist living. It's how the atheist would live that Todd talked about at the beginning. If this is it, that's what Solomon's asking. What benefit, what gain for all this toil, all that race you just made me run through, the 28 seasons, what's the point? Screams the world, screams Satan to tempt us. If God really loved you, would he let you go through this? Would he give you cancer? Would he put you through that? Tempts us in our flesh as well as we crave comfort. And the truth of the matter is, if we don't have Christ, it is futile. Because we'll eat, drink, be merry, 
tomorrow we die, and apart from Christ, spend eternity in hell. But with Jesus as our Lord and Savior, trusting him for the forgiveness of sins, it's not futility, it becomes utility. And God says, no, 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 no. Everything bad that you have suffered through, every hardship, every tear, every pain, every scar, I have redeemed for good. I am using it for the purpose to shape you into the image of Christ. The world screams futility. And God says, no, there's utility. I am using that for God's glory and for your good to shape you to the image of Christ. See, God uses circumstance to shape character. If you don't believe me, read James 1 and 1 Peter 1, where he says that trials and afflictions prove genuine your faith and create in you perseverance and maturity so that you lack nothing. God uses these circumstances, those 28 seasons of life, because he is creating in you the character of Christ. Randy Alcorn says that a life of ease is deadly to the Christian. A life of ease is deadly to the Christian. And so God knows what we need and just how much, and he sovereignly allows it. That is the perplexing process of why there would be both good and bad. As we um, move ahead, I think I messed up my slides here. As we move ahead, you see the providential promise So Ecclesiastes 3.11, let's read that. He says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So before we talked about God's sovereignty and the perplexing process, now that we have the providential promise, we talk about God's providence. Sovereignty is God is overall, all authority. Providence is that he is intimately and imminently at work in every situation. He is there with you, redeeming and at work in everything, the good and the bad, to bring about your good, Romans 8, 28, and his glory. He is at work in the details. Genesis 50, 20, what man meant for evil, God meant or is using for good for the saving of many lives. So God is providential. It says here in this passage, he has made everything beautiful or appropriate in its time. Has made, it's past tense, he's already done it because God stands outside of time. And so while we're in the midst of it, God is screaming to us, don't worry, I have made this beautiful. Hold on in your faith, wait and watch for me to redeem it. He's put eternity in our hearts, even though we may not see it in this life, one day we will see and it will all be clear. You may not know why you lost a family member, why the cancer. You may not know here in this life or only have a glimpse of how God can use that for good. But in eternity to come, he promises, he has made everything beautiful appropriate in its time. He's put eternity into man's heart. And so as we think about this, you know, there's Romans 8, 28. He works all things for good for those who love him. Well, following that, it's Romans 8, 29 through 30. And it says, those whom he foreknew and predestined, he took through and he also glorified. 
What he begins, he will finish. And there is never anything left undone. And everything in between, he promises to work for good. No matter what you're facing or will face, this is our certain hope. I want to show you some trash on the screen, some broken bits and pieces. This is a a series of discarded items that were once useful. These are consumer products that were broken and discarded, trash. And they're set there in just total randomness. There's no order, there's no purpose, and they're worthless. I put a square around that blue ring so that we can kind of track it through the progress. But you see the randomness and the senselessness. This is how we see the problems in our life. They're just like, it's a random mess and we see no value in it. You zoom out a little bit and you see that blue ring and in the bottom left-hand corner, you start to see, hey, you know what? I can start to see a glimpse of some purpose. And all of a sudden, you maybe can consider, you know what? It's not as random as I thought it was. Now that I pull back a little, now that I've got more time and distance and perspective, I can start to see this is not just random. In fact, there seems to be some kind of ordering. It's not by chance. And there appears to be a designer that is aligning pieces that are starting to make sense. And you pull back fully to see the full image And you see that not only is it not random, it's beautiful. That that is a work of art. That there was a designer taking every broken piece and placing it intentionally at work to make something beautiful for the glory of the artist and for the good of those pieces. This is what God is doing in our lives when he says he has made everything beautiful, appropriate in its time. God's at work behind the scenes, redeeming, re-engineering our pain. He will never waste your pain. That was said to me during the most difficult time of my life, and it has so been true. So if that is the providential promise, then we go to Ecclesiastes 3, 12 through 15, and we see the end of the matter the perfect prescription. See, if there is the perplexing promise of God, why amidst the good is there the bad? Amidst the ease is there the hard? Why, God, would you allow this? What's the point? And he gives us the providential promise. I'm at work. I'm there with you. And this is not the end. And thus, God, what do we do in the meantime then? As we wait on you to redeem all things, as we wait on Christ's return, what do we do? And he gives us the perfect prescription. And he says, men, do this. Rejoice, do good, and fear God. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that we would fear him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. What this passage is saying there is about contentment where it says, no matter what your circumstances, the 28 seasons doesn't matter. Rejoice. 
Enjoy your work, eat and drink, do good. Wait, but do that in the midst of the tearing down and the building and the destroying and the war? Yes, in the midst of all that, do those things and you will have contentment. It's what Paul says in Philippians. 16 times he says, rejoice from a prison cell. And he says, I've learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. It's Jesus who gives me strength. Whether I'm well-fed or hungry, clothed or naked, rich or poor, hardship or ease, Jesus, he's the one with me, seeing me through. I have contentment with him. You see, Solomon was the richest man in the world. He had 1,000 wives and concubines, silver and gold amassed more than anyone ever had and ever will, horses and chariots and kingdoms. And he was not content in those things. There's no contentment in them. This is the man who wrote this letter. And he's saying there's not contentment there. But there is in fearing God and rejoicing in what you have. You see, because the times of ease, those are actually greater tests, the tests of prosperity rather than the tests of adversity. We groan under the tests of adversity. But you know when Solomon fell away? You know when David fell away? Times of prosperity. That's when their hearts drifted. That's when Solomon turned and worshiped other gods. We live in Dallas, y'all. It's times of prosperity. Those are the tests we have to be careful for. And I'll say this, if you're not content, if you're sitting here right now and you're like, but I'm not content, it's only until I get the girl, have the job, make the million, get the house, that's when I'll be content. I will say to you, you will never be content. That is a condition of your heart. If you're not content now, it's not because of your circumstances, it's because of your heart. And Christ alone will change that. The most content I have ever been in my life, including now, the most content I have ever been is when I was making less than 9,000 a year. That's less than welfare. For three years, I made less than 9,000. 2008 to 2011 is the most content I've ever been because I was in a daily desperate dependence upon God. And I like have this strange yearning and longing for times of suffering and hardship because of the closeness that it brings us to. Contentment. The next one is be good, do good. This is not sin management, but rather there is a command here in the scriptures to do good. It is a proactivity of doing good, not just a, a neutrality or a negation of, hey, don't do bad. He says, do good. Why would he say that? Because we get so fixated on our own trials and temptations and these seasons of life, the 28 seasons of, yeah, but it's hard and I'm going through this affliction and all this introspection, which leads to depression and despair. And he's like, could you just forget about that and do good? Love God and love others. Forget yourself, take up your cross, do good. Not because he's trying to be mean and doesn't care about our suffering, because he knows that is the very best thing for us. And that as we forget our suffering, like Paul, and proactively do good to others, it'll lead to that rejoicing. It, it will lead to us and deliver us out of it. Do good. And then lastly, fear God. I just, just say here, don't forget that forever is at stake. When you're going through the trial at work, with your wife, with your children who are in rebellion, whatever it is, the cancer, the ailment, the divorce, whatever it is, don't forget that forever is at stake. And this is not about you. It's about God's glory. And the world is watching, knowing you as a Christ follower. 
forever is at stake and the lives and souls of men who will spend eternity in heaven and hell and are looking at you, Christian, to say, how will you navigate this? How will you navigate this dangerous, difficult path? Can you rejoice in suffering? How could you? Who is your God? I want to know him. You remember my guide on the river. When I got on that raft and had the front seat, I remember thinking two things. One, I could die on this river. And two, I need to listen to everything Sarah says because she knows this river. She's been down it with many people and she knows how to get me in and out alive. And not only that, she knows how to help me enjoy the ride and for it not to be a whip and a beating, but instead to have the most incredible time. That's her job. That's what she lives for. And so I hung on every word she said. And there were times on those class five rapids with the pictures you saw when she was like, John, paddle as hard as you can towards that rock. And by rock, I mean boulder bigger than me with waves smashing into it and throwing up spray. And I'm like, you're insane and we're all gonna die. And I don't know what happened with you and your boyfriend, but we're dead and you're taking us with you. But I was like, all right. And I'm just digging in, head down as hard as I can while she steers from the back and I'm paddling towards the rock. And that's what God says. Don't be afraid, men. Paddle towards the rock, I've got you. And if you don't, it's gonna lead to more pain and difficulty. But if you do, you will rejoice and the world will say, who is your God? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you have not left us alone. We thank you, God, that you are sovereign over our pain and afflictions and that you in your grace have given us good things and pray, God, that those good things would never take your place. Thank you, God, that you are providentially with us in all and you redeem all of our pain and re-engineer it for our good and for your glory. Thank you, God, that you have given us the perfect prescription of how to navigate through this life. And God, that you're on the journey with us and that we can look at eternity ahead, just like Jesus who said, for the joy set before him endured the cross. God, for the joy set before us to be with you in eternity, may we too endure whatever cross you give us to carry for our good, for your glory, that the souls of men might be saved and say, who is your God? And that we would be bold to say, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Fellas, before we break, uh, if this is your first time here, two things. These are not my props. I don't want you to think less of me. There's some kind of girls thing going on. If this is your first time here, please stay in this room and come forward towards me. There's a group that you can be a part of this morning. It's not over. There's going to be great discussion. Y'all have a great morning sharing together. Love y'all.